an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We know from uh, some studies that have been done that uh, attachment security helps kids in school in a number of different ways. Uh, as I said before, uh, children with a history of secure attachment uh, have better socio-emotional abilities. They get along with people better. They regulate their emotions better. Uh, they tend to have better relationships with peers and teachers. They also show more persistence in the face of failure, so they're more likely to keep trying at something difficult instead of giving up, which is obviously a great asset in an educational environment. And they tend to be more confident and uh, engage in more effective problem solving. There's also evidence to suggest that having a history of secure attachment promotes better language development. We learn to communicate better because of this uh, positive secure relationship we've had communicating with our caregivers. So overall, secure attachment tends to promote better success in school. Now, that doesn't mean higher IQ. In fact, IQ does not have any correlation with uh, attachment. So it doesn't, it's not a function of, of cognitive ability. It's a function of managing the school environment and the challenges that it presents. And secure attachment helps us to do that by getting along with people, by communicating better, by persisting in the face of failure, and so forth. All right, we know that children with a history of insecure attachment tend to have more difficulties in these same areas. Uh, they show more uh, attention and emotional and behavioral problems at school. And this can lead to rejection from peers and even from teachers, making it much more difficult for them to navigate the school environment. And they're also at greater risk for mental illness as well as failure uh, in school, uh, problems with retention or dropping out. Now, uh, one researcher kind of uh, developed this little table, which I find very helpful and interesting. And if you can't read it, like I said, I'm happy to, to uh, email you the slides. But basically what he did is he broke down these four attachment patterns that I talked about last night, secure, avoidant, ambivalent, and disorganized, and how these might be manifest in school behavior, in preschool kids, primary school, and, and secondary. <laughs> And I'm not going to go through all of this with you, uh, but um, the information is very useful and, and helpful. And if those of you who, who want it, feel free to put your name on the list. There are also some interesting books on applying attachment theory to the school environment uh, that I have on my bibliography that you might be interested in. Okay. But the bottom line is that kids who feel more secure, who have more, more security at home, tend to function better. And those in these uh, three insecure categories, categories tend to have problems of various sorts. All right. Now, an interesting idea uh, that comes from all this is thinking about the teacher, the person of the teacher, as um, sort of an adjunct attachment figure for the child. All right. So thinking of the teacher as a secure base or as an attachment figure. Uh, we know from research that the teacher-student relationship is powerful. Uh, a solid relationship between a teacher and his or her students marked by warmth, open communication, and so forth is linked with a lot of positive outcomes, such as better peer relations in the classroom, uh, improved academic trajectory, more likely to succeed in school, and overall child well-being throughout the school years. So this is not specifically attachment research per se, but we know from, from psychological research that, that teachers that are very good at fostering that kind of positive relationship with the students, their students tend to do better in all of these areas. Okay. We also know, interestingly enough, that the, it's the teachers early in a child's school experience that seem to have a, a, a stronger effect because they're sort of the first 
experience that the child has of school and how teachers are and what to expect. We talked a little bit yesterday this idea of an internal working model, a sort of mental image of how relationships work. And there's something about those first few teachers that you have in grade school that sort of set our expectations, our internal working model for how relationships with teachers uh, are likely to go in the future. All right, whereas conflicted or distant relationships tend to lead to negative effects in these areas. Uh, as I said last night in response to a question, it's normal for kids to have multiple attachment figures. Usually, um, there's, one, there's typically one primary attachment figure, and it's in the normal course of events, the mother, but it could be someone else. But there tends to be other attachment figures as well. And a teacher can take on some of those functions. A child may go to the teacher in distress. Uh, the teacher may provide some kind of uh, you know, comfort or help to the child. Uh, the, the teacher may be someone that challenges the, the child to grow, like a secure base would, uh, to celebrate the child's successes and things like that. And in some cases, if the home life is not so good and the child experiences insecure attachment there, uh, having a secure, a relatively secure relationship with a teacher can offset that. Okay. So if the child feels secure with the teacher, he's more able to explore. And exploration leads to learning. Uh, in Bowlby's theory, he talked about these, these uh, different instincts that we have. Attachment is one, exploration is another. And these two inhibit each other. In other words, the more uh, I'm feeling insecure and my attachment system is kind of revved up, the less interested I am in going out and exploring and learning new things. Instead, I'm just interested in, in going and getting comfort and feeling more secure. But if I have security there, then my attachment instinct can kind of settle down, and that frees me up then to go and explore and learn. So the more a child feels secure with a teacher, the more he's going to be open to learning, the more he's willing to explore new ideas or new skills or try new things. All right, if the child is feels secure with the teacher, he's also more able to care for others. Like I talked about with the morality stuff, the more secure we feel, the more able uh, we are to respond to another person in, dis in distress. So the overall classroom environment will improve because uh, there will be less aggression, there will be more empathy, more compassion for each other. All right. And as I said, uh, the teacher can kind of provide a corrective experience for those children who maybe don't have uh, a secure, stable attachment at home. Okay. All right, enough about that. So I just want to talk about a couple ways to kind of foster this sort of security in the teacher-student relationship. And I think one of the key ways is developing a personal connection with each student. And I'm talking about whether you're teaching small children or high schoolers or uh, perhaps even college students. Uh, developing a personal connection with each student. Uh, one way, a simple way to do that is the way that we do our hellos and goodbyes. There's something very powerful about learning someone's name, looking them in the eye, and saying, hello, it's nice to see you, or goodbye, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, those little encounters can be very powerful when they occur over and over and over again. Uh, one thing that I um, have come to appreciate about, for instance, the Montessori style of education is that it's traditional for the Montessori teacher to greet each student at the doorway when they come in in the morning and to shake hands, say their name, say good morning Johnny, uh, and welcome them into the classroom. And then they do the same thing at the end of the day. Nice seeing you today Johnny, I'll see you tomorrow. And they do that every day. And so in that 
little brief interaction that only takes a couple of seconds, you get eye contact, name recognition, uh, physical touch, and a plan for reunion. All of which are, uh, you know, positive things that promote uh, the, the child's sense of security, right? Now, we can do this not just with little kids, but with older kids, too. It might not be as formal as a handshake and so forth, but, you know, a high five or, you know, in some cases, maybe even, a, you know, a hug, like in a youth group setting or whatever, in some kind of ministry. Um, but some kind of acknowledgement that it's good that you're here. I know you, and I'm glad to see you. And I'll see you next time. So there's a plan for us to get back together again. All right. It's also important for teachers and ministers to see... Um, the, the, the child or adolescent's behavior as a form of communication. It communicates something to us. Behavior is not meaningless. It's not just noise that we, you know, turn up or turn down by reinforcements and punishments. It means something. It conveys a message. And attachment research shows that the more I can see the underlying message underneath that behavior, the more it enables me to respond appropriately and the more secure that person will feel with me. All right. So here's just a few ideas about how to do that in the school environment. I'm not going to go into that too much detail right now. Also, just creating a safe, stable environment. Again, whether this is an education or ministry, a place where the students or, or, or youth feel safe. So we want to minimize things like bullying. We want to make it predictable. Uh, there need to be, you know, some clear rules of conduct so everyone knows what to expect. Um, you know, all this talk about attachment and relationships doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we don't still have to be sort of in charge and be able to manage uh, the environment so that everyone feels safe. Uh, we need to also have that authority to be able to do that. So things like consistent behavioral management, um, you know, having consistent rules and consequences, not in an authoritarian sort of way, but just in a way to keep people safe. And applying the same warmth and firmness to everyone so that there's a sense of equality and that the rules don't change in the heat of the moment. Okay. Also, it's important to, to model effective emotion regulation. What do I mean by that? In other words, to be an example of how to manage your own emotions and uh, to be able to find ways to help uh, children and youth do that as well. So being able to name, for instance, what they're experiencing. Oh, you seem really sad right now. You seem really angry. You know, what's that about? What, what is the sadness about? Oh, it's, you're sad about your parents divorcing, or you're angry because you know, of what your, your brother did to you, or you know, whatever. Helping them to name their feelings, to understand what they're about, to have an appropriate, respectful way to express them, and figure out what to do about it. All right. Um, there are a lot of... Um, good resources out there now for teaching things like emotional intelligence in the classroom. Uh, one organization is CASEL, C-A-S-E-L. I think it stands for something like the Consortium for Social Emotional Learning or something like that. Uh, they have a lot of interesting uh, material, even you know, whole curricula that have been developed to help teachers um, teach these skills to students, how to identify and manage their emotions appropriately. One idea in the psychological literature also, if for, this is for teachers or others uh, involved with youth who have, you know, kind of a problem child, kid who's maybe got a difficult home life and he's showing problem behavior. Uh, this particular researcher, Pianta, uh, talked about what he calls banking time. Really what he's talking about is just spending some quality one-on-one -on -one time with that student or with that youth. 
Uh, and this should be a kind of non-directive, you know, I just want to spend some time with you, um, you know, for your sake, just, you know, just to be together. And so they might, you might talk or play games or whatever, but the child kind of gets to choose. This is not a lecture, this is not teaching time or anything like that, it's, it's just a, a time to connect. Now obviously, uh, you know, in, in our current environment, um, spending one-on-one -on -one time with, with students and youth is sometimes frowned upon, so you have to have you know, all the accountability factors in place, maybe the open door or whatever, tell somebody else what you're doing so that, you know, there's no secrecy about this. But the idea, though, is still uh, to provide that student a little extra one-on-one -on -one time so that they can learn to feel a little bit more secure with you. Okay. Yeah, it's important to take a non-evaluative accepting posture. I'm just here to listen and, and be supportive. Um, and, and that's all. That's, that's what this is about. And you might think about, you know, what kind of a, a message do I need to send to this student to help them feel more secure? You know, is it that, um, you know, your feelings are okay here, um, I'm gonna, you know, listen no matter what, um, I'm safe, uh, I'm here to help, I wanna help you with your problems, whatever it may be that may help this child to feel more secure with you than maybe they have with other adults. All right, now also, um, actually I'm getting a little ahead of myself, a couple other things. Decreasing pullout for special services means that uh, the child has more stability, more time with the teacher, uh, less disruptions, and that may also predict better security. Also lower child to teacher ratios. And this idea of looping, which basically is spending more than one year with the same teacher. Right? In our current educational system, this is pretty uncommon. You know, you go to first grade with one teacher, and then you go to second grade with another teacher, and third grade with a third teacher, and so forth. So all the time, every year, the child has to go through this new experience of forming an attachment and then losing an attachment, okay? That can be difficult, especially for kids, again, who maybe don't have much security in the home life. So the idea of sticking with the same teacher for two or three years, uh, I think, can be really beneficial because, again, it creates more stability, more consistency, and it, it provides an opportunity for that relationship to deepen. Uh, again, in the Montessori tradition, uh, it's typical that you would have one teacher for three years, uh, for six to nine, and then nine through 12, uh, and so forth. It's also really important for the teachers to have their own support. You can't give what you don't have. And so if I'm going to be a secure base to these students, uh, I need to have people that I can turn to, such as colleagues, uh, the administration, um, maybe a spiritual director, spouse, uh, and my relationship with God. I have to have sources of security in my own life. If I'm feeling insecure in the school environment, if I feel like the principal's not supporting me, or the, the climate among the faculty is hostile, uh, or things like that, it's going to make it harder for me to be that secure base for my students. And the same is true for ministers of various sorts, the same is true for therapists. Essentially, you can't give what you don't have. So you've got to uh, establish those sources of security in your own life. All right. I hope that was uh, useful or, or informative for you. Uh, I'm going to go on now and talk about how I use this information or how it can be used in a psychotherapeutic situation. So a therapist or counselor needs some kind of theoretical framework to help guide the decisions they make uh, in clinical practice. Things like, um, you know, how do I understand this person in front of me? What kind of therapeutic tasks are we going to do? How do I manage the therapeutic uh, alliance? How do I manage termination 
or you know, disruptions in, in the therapy, things like that. And to a certain extent, I think attachment theory can provide that framework. It's not a complete, I don't think it's a complete theory of psychotherapy, but there's enough there that it, it gives us some good things, a, a good foundation to start from. For instance, in case conceptualization. Case conceptualization just simply means how the therapist understands you and your difficulties and the whole therapeutic process. So attachment uh, theory can help us begin to connect some dots about you know, your past, your present, and maybe the things that are from that contributing to your current distress. All right. It also gives us uh, helpful information about the therapeutic relationship. That is the relationship between the patient and the therapist how that's forming, how that's evolving over time. And it also can give us some interesting clues about ways we might uh, intervene to help this person, as well as how to manage termination. Essentially, as I said last night, attachment is all about how we learn to give and receive love. And I think of psychotherapy as a way where we have um, a t an opportunity to correct maybe what we learned, uh, or maybe learn something that we never learned at all. So what does the research show, first of all, about attachment and psychotherapy? So if you look at uh, the patient's attachment status, whether or not they're secure or one of those other types coming into therapy, we know that those who feel more secure are, first of all, more willing to go to therapy, and they're more comfortable in therapy. They tend to be more compliant with recommendations, and they form a better therapeutic alliance. Um, so essentially, it's sort of like the rich get richer. And we've known that in psychotherapy research for a long time, that people who are higher functioning when they come to therapy tend to benefit from therapy more, um, largely because they have more resources to draw on. Uh, it's easier for them to form a relationship with the therapist. They might have more uh, energy or, or strength of will to implement changes in their life. Um, and so they just tend to respond better. That's not that those who are less fortunate can't benefit from psychotherapy. It's just that the work is a little bit more challenging for both the patient and the therapist. So those who have a more preoccupied attachment style, which is characterized by anxiety about rejection and a kind of a tendency to be somewhat clingy, we see more alliance ruptures, more conflict and tension in the therapeutic relationship. They're more likely to feel like the therapist is letting me down. In terms of the outcome of therapy, in other words, who gets better, secure patients respond the best, but there's some evidence that those who are, are dismissive uh, can respond fairly well also. And again, you know, the others res can respond positively as well, but it just takes more work. In terms of the therapist's own attachment status, uh, secure therapists tend to be more flex flexible in responding to patients. Uh, they tend to have fewer problematic reactions to the patient. Uh, and overall, I think, perform a little bit better in the therapeutic environment. And those who are more anxious about, you know, rejection and abandonment, they, they form good alliances with the patient early. You know, they don't want the patient to quit, so they're going to work hard at making sure that the patient likes the therapist and feels comfortable in the therapy, but that alliance tends not to be sustained over time. They tend to have more problems as time goes on. Okay. Now, you can look at the relationship between the patient and the therapist as also a kind of an attachment relationship, like I talked about with teachers and students. And there's some reasons for that. I mean, the, the therapist is often looked at as someone who's stronger and wiser, someone I go to in my distress, uh, someone that when I'm having a hard time, I want to be close to, I want to talk to them, I want to get their support. 
uh, and also someone that, you know, if I make an improvement, I want to tell them so we can, you know, I can get a pat on the back and we can maybe celebrate my success. So uh, the therapist takes on many of these attachment functions for the patient. Uh, in terms of this relationship, the more security there is in that relationship, the more the patient feels secure with the therapist, uh, it frees them up to have more depth in the sessions. They're more likely to, to go deeper uh, in terms of their exploration uh, of you know, their issues. All right, um, let's just keep moving here. There's also research that shows that psychotherapy, good psychotherapy, can actually help people who are more insecure become more secure. So for instance, um, we see a shift from the more secure states of mind towards a more secure state of, sorry, insecure states of mind to secure uh, as a function of psychotherapy. Um, there's also improvements in that ability to what they call mentalize, which means to see emotions and see behavior, or see beneath behavior to the emotions and needs that it represents, which is a crucial skill in not only managing my own emotional life, but being able to be a, a good caregiver for others. <coughs> and in one recent uh, randomized controlled clinical trial, uh, transference-focused psychotherapy, which is a kind of psychodynamic therapy, resulted in improvements in attachment security and this, uh, and this ability to mentalize whereas dialectical behavior therapy and another type of supportive psychotherapy did not. So it seems that um, the kind of psychotherapy that focuses on relationships and especially the, the relationship between the therapist and the patient is particularly helpful in um, helping people become more secure. All right, so in terms of how I understand you know, case formulation, how I understand this person in front of me and their distress, um, there's a number of helpful, helpful things that come from this attachment literature. So first of all, considering the attachment dynamics that underlie the person's distress, the quality of their past attachment relationships. You know, as part of uh, every you know, psychotherapy intake process, usually there's a discussion of family of origin. And so trying to particularly look at the quality of attachment between uh, the patient and the key caregivers they have had in their life. And sometimes it's not so much the events that they report but it's how they report them. As I talked about last time, looking at research on the adult attachment interview, uh, what happens isn't uh, always as important as how I make sense of it and my ability to tell a coherent story about what happened. And so looking at that uh, as we uh, begin the therapeutic process. I also want to question whether or not the current systems, symptoms that we're seeing are related to some unresolved attachment experience. I'll explain more about what that means a little bit later on. So that's the past. I'm also interested in what's going on in the person's life now. Who are their key attachment figures now and how are those relationships going? Uh, it's common, for instance, if there's been a disruption in the person's relationships, maybe a, a conflict with uh, a loved one, a falling out with a friend, maybe they've made some kind of major life transition, like they just went to college or graduated college lost a job or took a new job, moved from one city to another, these create disruptions in their key relationships and often as a result the person may experience psychological distress of some sort. Uh, and so any kind of disruption in the person's current attachment relationships uh, is very important to understand because it may be leading you know, to the distress uh, that is the whole reason why they came to therapy. I also want to look at how they 
um, in their attachment relationships how they go about the safe haven and the secure base behavior. In other words, when they're in distress, what do they do with that? Do they tell somebody? Do they um, you know, get upset and they can't seem to calm down? Um, or do they sort of minimize it, sweep it under the rug and not tell anybody? Uh, or do they just fall apart altogether? In terms of secure base behavior, same, same kind of thing. Who do they share their successes with? Uh, you know, who, who do they enjoy being around? Who helps them feel more confident? Um, anybody. Um, these are the kinds of things I want to look at. Also, how they manage their emotions, which comes in part from how their previous relationships with attachment figures have gone. So how do they manage their emotions? How do they manage their distress? Um, are they emotionally aware? Are they able to name their feelings? Are they able to communicate about them? Uh, do they get overwhelmed by them? Um, or do they um, tend to shut them down? Have there been issues of trauma and loss in their key relationships? Maybe uh, an attachment figure died or an attachment figure was abusive uh, or something like that. Those are very powerful experiences that the therapy may need to address. The ability ne to negotiate one's needs, to communicate one's needs. This comes from, as I talked about last night, uh, you know, as we develop you know, around age three and four and beyond, we begin to negotiate more with our attachment figures to try to um, make a plan together that satisfies your needs and my needs. And our ability to do that is crucial in feeling secure in subsequent relationships. And then lastly, that ability to mentalize or think about uh, emotions and needs that underlie my behavior and underlie other people's behaviors. So these are all things I'm going to look at. And they give me, all this gives me clues about the person's internal working model, or in other words, that mental template that they have about how close relationships are supposed to work. There are ways to assess that directly. There are some questionnaires and things that can be used. As I said, some of the validity of those is, you know, is still in question. There are other instruments, such as the adult attachment interview, and a newer one called the adult attachment projective. It's a projective test uh, where a person looks at some uh, pictures and tells a story about them, and you can discern from that what their attachment state of mind is. Uh, also, the, how they relate with the therapist. Uh, are they comfortable opening up with the therapist? Uh, do they sort of monopolize the session because they have so much to say, so much to get out? Um, do they take a more distant approach? Um, how do they relate with the therapist? That's going to give me clues about that mental template or internal working model that they have about um, how relationships are supposed to work. All right. And so their attitude and behavior towards therapy, towards the therapist, towards all of this, how they regulate their emotions. Now, in the attachment literature, in this regard, um, they sometimes use this helpful little um, uh, categorization of hyperactivating versus deactivating versus dissociative. And primarily the first two, hyperactivating versus deactivating. So a hyperactivating patient is one who uh, ramps up their distress. They, they start talking about what's bothering them and they can't seem to settle down. They just go on and on and they have a hard time soothing. The little uh, video that I showed last night illustrated that in the little child who, after being separated from the mother, came back together and, and couldn't seem to be comforted. All right, that would be uh, an example of hyperactivating the attachment system. And deactivating is sort of the opposite. It's, it's um, you know, I, ch I try to ignore or suppress my distress. I'm not going to acknowledge it, not going to talk about it, certainly not going to go to someone with it. And dissociative simply means 
kind of falling apart, becoming disconnected. All right, you can also use imagery to try to assess people's attachment working models. Uh, one thing that I sometimes do is, you know, I'll ask uh, the patient to imagine that they're a small child and um, they're scared or hurt uh, or in distress and simply tell me a story, tell me how, it, how do they see it playing out in their mind. Well, I just go to my room and I cry. And then what happens? Well, nothing. I just eventually go back to playing. Or I go to mom and she gives me a Band-Aid and a hug and I feel better. These can illustrate sometimes key differences in uh, this person's state of mind regarding their attachment um, history. All right, and the quality of their narrative. Are they able to tell a coherent narrative about their attachment experiences? Or do they tend to get uh, over-involved, uh, like, like I talked about hyperactivating, or um, they tend to shut down and dismiss attachment, like a, uh, the deactivating type? Okay. And lastly, the relationship with God uh, and how they understand God. Uh, is God someone who is easy for them to get close to? Do they experience Him as loving, as there for them? Do they have doubts about God's intentions toward them? Do they have doubt that, uh, that God will really be there for them? Um, these kinds of things also give key clues about the person's attachment status uh, and provide much uh, fodder for work and therapy. Okay, in terms of selecting different types of, of treatment <laughs> modalities uh, and work with children and families, uh, there, there have been some interesting um, intervention strategies developed from the basis of attachment research. These are a few of them. Uh, Circle of Security Project, I showed an image last night uh, called the Circle of Security that comes from their work. I also mentioned this third one, Attachment Focused Family Therapy. Um, but there are some nice uh, interventions out there that have a good research basis to them. I'm not going to talk much about these, I'm going to focus more on our work with adults. And in terms of adult therapies, there's a lot of different types of therapy now that uh, pull from attachment theory uh, and the research that I've talked about. In fact, it's getting harder and harder to, uh, you know, find a system of psychotherapy that doesn't pull from this body of literature in some regard uh, because it's been so influential. And so these are a few of the, um, the ones that I've come across in the literature. Uh, different types of interpersonal therapy, a few types of psychodynamic therapy, uh, and so forth. Okay. Now, Bowlby himself, who's the founder of attachment theory, he was a psychoanalyst. So his concern with all of this was to help people. And uh, one of his last books that he wrote uh, before he passed away in uh, 1990 uh, was about applying this to the psychotherapeutic situation. And he developed these five therapeutic tasks. So he sees these, these five tasks as sort of central to the whole psychotherapeutic encounter uh, and come right from his attachment theory. The first uh, task that Bowlby talked about is providing the patient with a secure base. What does that mean? Well, it means that the therapist is there for them, that he's responsive to the patient's needs, he's safe, and that he encourages the, the patient to explore. And in therapy, that typically means explore our interior life, our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, things like that. And that's first and foremost. It's really primary. If the, if the patient doesn't feel relatively secure with the therapist, the therapy is not going to get off the ground. So we have to establish that first and foremost. Secondly, he talked about helping the patient to explore his current relational patterns. So what's going on in your relationships nowadays? You know, with boyfriend or girlfriend or roommate or mom or dad or spouse, 
let's look at these relationships. Let's look at the difficulties that are happening. And let's try to see if we can identify any patterns that keep seeming to pop up. So we want to try to identify those patterns. Particularly, we, we want to help the patient to identify those patterns. They need to have insight into you know, the patterns that they keep finding themselves in. Also, uh, explore the relationship with the therapist. Now, this is important because those patterns uh, are likely in some form, maybe a muted form, maybe more explicit, to come up in the therapy as well. All right? Because again, going back to this idea of the internal working model, I have this mental template or image of how relationships are supposed to work. So these patterns are, are problems that I tend to have with other people. They may also come into the therapy. So periodically we need to talk about how this is going between us. What do you see happening here? This is what I see. What do you see? And looking at that and again helping the patient to develop insight into uh, how uh, they relate with others. Bowlby also emphasized helping the patient once, once they have that insight into linking these patterns with patterns from the past. Where did I learn this? What, why, why do I keep finding myself in this pattern? What, where did this pattern come from? You know, and, and seeing if you can link it up with maybe something that happened um, in childhood, a pattern that the person experienced then uh, or, or some other earlier phase of life. And then lastly, to work with the patient to evaluate whether this way of relating is working out for them or whether they want to try to learn a different way of relating. So is it, is it appropriate for you in your life right now? Is this helping you have the kinds of relationships you want to have? Well, what would be a different way of doing it? What would that look like? Let's work on that together. So these are kind of the five tasks that Bowlby talked about. Now, another uh, psychologist, Lorna Benjamin, more recently, developed her own set of five steps, and they're very similar to Bowlby's. And I want to talk with, them, talk with you about them briefly. Her system of therapy called IRT stands for uh, Interpersonal Reconstructive Therapy. And it really is a type of therapy that she developed specifically for working with people who have very severe difficulties, uh, personality disorders or other uh, very difficult to treat conditions. Uh, oftentimes you have been in and out of hospitals or uh, other sources, uh, types of treatment. And so her whole system is designed to, to help uh, these people with really um, kind of difficult or stuck issues. Similar to Bowlby, she emphasizes first and foremost establishing uh, a, a strong uh, therapeutic relationship. Now these steps are not exactly sequential, but they are hierarchical, she says, meaning that the first ones uh, are more important than the later ones. You can't proceed to the later ones unless you've already established the, uh, the earlier ones. So first, the therapeutic relationship has to be established. There has to be a sense of collaboration. We're going to work together on this issue. Uh, a sense of trust and openness. Secondly, kind of similar to Bowlby, she emphasized learning about the patient's patterns. And not just the therapist learning about the patient's patterns, but the patient as well. It's a collaborative process. So how do I tend to relate to significant others and to myself? Um, where do these patterns come from? What are they for? Uh, and so forth. Basically how they function in my life. How they function in my life, where do they come from? So forth. Then, uh, Benjamin adds this, this step that Bowlby doesn't talk so much about, and it's blocking the maladaptive patterns. So once you identify what the key patterns are, the, the, the particularly problematic ones, you want to take steps to help them interrupt those processes. And here she says you can use a whole variety of different types of uh, psychological interventions. Uh, anything, you know, pretty much anything goes as long as it sort of fits the model. 
and it helps the person to achieve these five steps. So um, different types of, of thought stopping or other types of things to try to interrupt these patterns that have become habitual in the person's life. And then, again, diverging from Bowlby a little bit, um, but showing some really key insight here, <coughs> she talks about strengthening the will to change. These patterns are, we persist in them in part because they do something for us. They do something for us. She talks about how when we get stuck repeating the same kind of maladaptive pattern over and over again, it's hard to change because that pattern, in a way, gives us a sense of sort of pseudo-security. It's familiar, and not only is it familiar, it connects us usually with some attachment figure from the past. This is the way mom acted. This is the way dad acted. Or this is the way I always acted when I was around him or her. This is the way they treated me, so this is the way I treat myself. So when I do those things, it's a way to create psychological proximity to that attachment figure in my memory. So this is a, it's a, a very subtle kind of thing, but it, it's, I think, very profound in understanding why people get stuck doing very maladaptive things. Even though they know that it's not helpful, they know that it's wrong, but they keep doing it again and again anyway. It gives them that sense of pseudo-security by connecting them to some attachment figure in the past. So to help them give that up, we have to find ways uh, for them to let go of that maladaptive attachment relationship from the past. And that's what she means when she says strengthen the will to change. Uh, strengthen the will to change means giving up the wish to reconnect with that attachment figure, to, to have the relationship with mom or dad that I never had, that I always wanted. If I keep doing it the way that dad said I should do it, maybe someday he'll be proud of me. You know, if I keep acting like mom's around and in charge, maybe someday she'll love me the way I needed her to. All right? And helping the person in therapy to realize that this is not going to happen and it's time to let go of the wish because the more you hold on to that, the more you get stuck in these patterns. And then lastly, once the person has been able to, to relinquish some of that, maybe not completely, but has made some progress, you can begin to work on learning new patterns, new ways of relating to others, new ways of relating to myself. Um, so it's a simple model, but it's really profound, and she's, uh, she's written some very helpful material on this. Um, I think I list uh, at least one, maybe two of her books in the, the bibliography. That's uh, Lorna Benjamin. All right. Um, an attachment researcher named uh, Brent Mallincrott has also written some very interesting things um, and done some interesting research looking at the therapeutic relationship and how to use that to help people change uh, in therapy from the perspective of attachment theory. So he talks about varying the therapeutic distance and proximity. So the first step is to determine whether this person in front of me is uh, more of the hyperactivating type, which means they, they, uh, it's hard for them to calm down and they want and need a lot of support, or more deactivating. They take a more distant approach. They keep their feelings more, more suppressed, more to themselves. In the initial stage of therapy, uh, once I understand if this is a more deactivating person or a more hyperactivating person, I'm going to basically indulge their preferred way of relating to me. So that means that if they take a more distant approach, well, I'll, I'll let them be more distant. We can talk intellectually. Um, we're not going to get too personal, uh, at least for this initial stage of therapy. 
uh, the more hyper-activating person, I'm going to give a lot of empathy, uh, I'm going to be more involved, um, I'm going to uh, provide a, a more direct help and support early on. Okay. Right, and that for the hyperactivating person, that leads to a sense of gratification. The therapist is there for me, and he's trying hard to meet my needs. For the deactivating uh, person, that leads to a feeling of relief. He's not pushing me to be more, more close or more self-disclosing than I'm comfortable being right now. That's for the initial stage of therapy. But then you watch for certain transition markers. You watch for the person to begin to feel a little bit more secure with you. Maybe the hyperactivating person might... Um, start to um, do things a little bit more independently, learn to self-soothe a little bit better. The deactivating person might start to open up a little bit more, maybe relate to you in a little bit more personal way. And uh, then uh, we can go deeper. Basically what you want to do is to begin to shift the way that you relate to the person, not abruptly, but gradually. So for the hyperactivating person, I'm going to put a little more emphasis on their autonomy. They're figuring out things for themselves. Well, what do you think you should do about that? What do you think a good solution would be? You know, things like that. I'm, an, I'm going to affirm their ability to uh, figure, figure out their problems and to cope with them on their own. Now, this can um, create, I can also create a little bit more distance by maybe being a little firmer about time boundaries and things like that uh, with the sessions. And um, for the deactivating person, I may push for more self-disclosure ask more personal questions, uh, talk more about, you know, what are you feeling right now in the here and now in session with me. Maybe even self-disclose a little bit in that regard. This is how I experience you. This is how I experience what's going on right now. Uh, getting them to um, be more open and more personal. Again, it's a gradual process, but I'm shifting them now into an area where they're uncomfortable. All right, and what this does is it helps them move in the direction of a more secure way of relating and helps restructure their internal working models. I tend to relate to people this way. My therapist is gradually shifting me into a different way of relating, and I'm having to confront my fears and my distress about doing that. And it leads to tension. So the hyperactivating pr person becomes more frustrated because you're not giving me as much help as you used to. You're, you know, putting it back on me too much. So they get frustrated. The deactivating person begins to experience anxiety. It's uncomfortable and, and, and scary for them to open up and to relate with you in a personal way. But you move them through that or, or walk with them through that, I should say, in a gradual way so that they can learn to tolerate that frustration or that anxiety and also learn that eventually whatever feared outcome they have uh, isn't going to come to pass. The hyperactivating person hopefully doesn't completely fall apart because you're not, you know, uh, coddling them as much as you used to. The deactivating person doesn't get absorbed into you and, and violated in some way by becoming more personal and more open. And so it becomes a corrective experience. But of course this tension that you have to go through uh, creates th the possibility of conflict or ruptures in the therapeutic alliance. And uh, a really helpful book on dealing with uh, ruptures in therapy is this book by Jeremy Safran and Chris Moran. Uh, it's called uh, Negotiating the Therapeutic Alliance. It's a thin book. It uh, came out in 2000. It's excellent. Uh, I really benefited from reading it. And much of what they have to say fits right with this attachment sort of model. And some of what they talk about in dealing with uh, difficulties in therapy, and this would also include, you know, um, 
many different types of, of relationships, especially helping relationships, if, when there's tension or conflict in the relationship. Noticing the difficulty and initiating an open discussion of it. You know, I've noticed that, um, you know, um, whatever, let's say, you know, we're having a hard time starting on time. And, you know, I'm curious about that. I, you know, I wonder what you think of it. Um, something like that. Or I, I noticed that our last couple sessions have seemed a little bit more distant. Uh, and I've been kind of curious about that. So not in an accusatory way, not sort of blaming the other person, you know, why are you doing this? No, it's, I've noticed this. I, I wonder what that means. Or I wonder if you've noticed it too. Let's talk about that. And it could be a problem between us, as I've illustrated. It could be a problem rea problematic reaction I'm having. So, you know, I've noticed that uh, for some reason in our last couple sessions, I, I've been feeling um, kind of lost. Like, I'm not sure how to respond to you. You know, does that make any sense to you? What do you think of that? Or I've been noticing that uh, I think I've been sort of taking you for granted a little bit. And I wonder, you know, if, if, uh, if that makes any sense or if you've noticed that. So it could be a problematic reaction I'm having. And it takes a lot of courage and tact to be able to bring that up and talk about it openly. But oftentimes this has huge relevance for the other person because they may have had the same experience with somebody else. You may be having that reaction because of something subtle that's going on in the way they relate with you. I'll talk about that, I think, a little on the next slide. Or it could be a problematic reaction I sense in the other person. You know, I'm not sure, but I kind of sense that you're a little bit frustrated with me about something. Uh, and I thought, you know, I wanted to talk with you and see what that's about. Um, or, uh, you know, I sensed that maybe you were a little disappointed with our last session. Um, you know, do you want to talk about that? So these are ways you might bring it up. But I find that when we uh, have the courage to do that and do it tactfully, the whole therapeutic process just becomes more alive. The session uh, becomes very... Um, sort of vivified and, it, and time just flies by and often very productive work is done. Uh, but it's a very different way of talking with people. We don't often talk about what's going on with you and me right now as we talk to each other. Um, but that's one of the key ways in which we step out of that old internal working model, you know, the way we've always done it, to look at, well, what's happening and am I okay with that? All right. So we process both person's experience of the situation or the problem, and we try to make it a we issue. This is a, a struggle we're having. We're in this together. It's like we're doing a dance, and uh, the dance isn't working too well. So let's figure this out together. Um, try to show acceptance and empathy for the other person and their, their perspective. And also, it's important to be willing to acknowledge our own contribution to the difficulty. We don't want to come across as sort of blaming the other person for relating to me in this maladaptive way. No, instead, let's work on this together. Let's negotiate this relationship together. And yeah, maybe this pertains to a maladaptive pattern that you've had in your life. Well, let's make that link, but let's also figure out how to manage our relationship. Okay, and the idea here is to gradually help the patient to articulate their needs in a more direct way and to negotiate a new relationship, a corrective relationship, one that doesn't repeat the old patterns, but is in a sense new and more secure and more healthy. Okay. All right, yes, working with the here and now. So as I already illustrated in that last slide, there's a great need in psychotherapy to talk about and to be aware of what's going on in the present moment in the session. These internal working models, these mental images I talked about of how relationships work, 
they're formed when we're very young and they op often operate, most of the time operate outside of conscious awareness. So it's difficult to sort of talk about them directly in, in, in a sort of intellectual way and, and to, you know, teach the patient how to relate differently. What needs to happen is they need to first of all be activated by the therapeutic encounter and then you see how they come up in subtle ways like the ways of you know how the patient relates to me how uh, what the patient pulls out of me how I feel with this patient things like that and so that's why this attention to the here and now is so important what's going on right now what am I feeling as I'm talking with this person how do is it, how do I think they're feeling what kind of dance are we doing right now what's the dynamic that's occurring here you know am I pursuing her, this person and they're pulling away um, are we sort of um, you know trying to one-up each other somehow um, are we working collaboratively are we working against each other what's going on there's a wonderful book by David Wallen called uh, attachment and psychotherapy it came out a few years ago uh, I highly recommend it and this quote he repeats oftentimes throughout the book which is really very very helpful he says that which we cannot verbalize we tend to enact with others to evoke in others and or to embody so that which we cannot verbalize, we tend to enact with others, evoke in others, or to embody. All right, he's getting at this idea of the internal working model. If I don't have full awareness of it and, and can talk about it explicitly, I'm, I'm likely to uh, fall into the trap of just doing it, enacting it over and over again. Or I may evoke it in others. I may evoke in you a problematic reaction similar to what previous attachment figures have shown to me. Uh, or I may uh, express it through my body, uh, through my, my physiology, and through my emotions. And so these are things that, as therapists and other uh, helpers in people's lives, we want to pay attention to. And if we can, you know, if we notice something that doesn't seem quite right, that, you know, is getting in the way of having a secure relationship, bringing it out in the open helps to disentangle us from this, um, this subtle process, this maladaptive pattern, and now frees us up to talk about it, to try to understand it, and to try to replace it with something healthier. This is obviously difficult. It requires an ability to, to be aware of what is happening in the present moment, in me, in the patient, and in between us. That's a lot to pay attention to. So, um, it's a tall order. All right. And essentially, when this process goes well, what happens is a kind of uh, right brain to right brain attunement. Much of this is nonverbal. You know, it's, it's what's going on beneath the level of our verbal discourse. So when we do that, we're really engaging the right hemisphere of the brain, uh, the ability to read emotions, to be aware of my body, to be aware of what's going on in the patient's body. Uh, and when I can pick up on these subtle things, uh, it's a kind of attunement. And that attunement is the very thing that uh, really skillful mothers do, for instance, with infants that help them to develop a secure attachment. <coughs> so this is a way, again, to understand how this becomes a corrective experience for people. When someone is that attuned to them, that they can pick up on these subtle uh, relational or, or emotional patterns that are occurring and to find a way to, to work through them. Okay, I mentioned trauma and loss earlier. Um, when doing any kind of trauma work, it's important that the therapist, uh, uh, again, be a secure base. 
um, because otherwise the patient's not going to be able to tolerate experiencing distressful memories in session. That's really important. Any kind of trauma work requires, you know, calling up the memories from the past. And you have to have a, a safe place and a safe person uh, with you in order to do that. Okay. And in trauma work, it's also important to help the person to learn how to self-soothe. So if I'm working with someone who has been through some traumatic experiences, uh, before we get into the trauma work, uh, you know, first of all, I want to make sure that they're comfortable with me. I also want to give them some, at least some basic skills on how to, how to calm down, how to self-soothe. Um, and we might actually build that in a regular part into the session that we might do a kind of cool down exercise at the end, like a few minutes of relaxation or something like that to help them uh, regulate their emotions. That again helps them feel secure. So then they know in the therapeutic hour, if we bring up these traumatic memories, I'm going to be able to calm down again before I have to go out the door and go back to work or go back home or whatever. All right. There's a lot of um, very helpful therapeutic modalities out there for trauma work. I'm not going to get into these uh, in any depth. Uh, one that I've found that, that I, uh, I like is emotion focused therapy. Um, and uh, I found it to be very helpful for dealing with trauma, uh, even what's called complex trauma, which is like ongoing trauma, like growing up with an abusive parent, for instance. Okay. All right, let's go on with that. Okay. Um, going back to some of uh, this woman, Lorna Benjamin's ideas with uh, interpersonal reconstructive therapy, as I, I indicated before, she interprets the person's current symptoms through this lens of an attempt to reconnect with a past attachment figure. So as I'm dealing with uh, maybe, you know, traumatic experiences in the past or whatever, this may become more apparent that this problematic behavior that the person is engaged in really was something that, that they learned in this previous relationship. And uh, helping them to grieve for what should have been there but wasn't uh, as an important part of the process and to let go of that wish uh, to reconnect. So the person may be acting like a previous attachment figure or acting as if that attachment figure is still around and in charge or treating him or herself as that attachment figure treated them. All right. All right, we already talked about most of this, so I'm just going to keep moving. Okay. Now, I find it also very helpful um, you know, lo looking at therapy from an attachment point of view to uh, do work on communication skills, okay? Why is that important? Well, because my ability to communicate my feelings and needs with others and to uh, help um, the other person to also meet their needs in the relationship is central to security, to feeling secure in the relationship. So um, Individuals who have grown up with perhaps an insecure attachment often have difficulties doing that. It wasn't maybe modeled for them very well, and uh, they weren't taught very well, uh, and so they often repeat the same kind of problematic communication behavior in their current relationships. All right, so they may need, for instance, help being assertive. You know, this is what I need from you, or, you know, um, setting boundaries, um, being able to negotiate needs. Uh, that kind of thing. And they may also have difficulty, especially the more avoidant types, showing empathy and caring for others. How do you respond to another person's distress? Um, do you just sort of tell them to suck it up? Do you um, get uncomfortable and not say anything? Um, or do you show them some kind of empathy? You know, wow, that must be really hard, you know, what you're going through. You look really sad. 
um, that kind of thing. People often need to learn how to do that because they never acquired that skill. So it's not, this part's, you know, not, not particularly, you know, it's not rocket science. You know, you model it, you describe it, you coach them. I often do role plays with people. Uh, it's awkward at first, but usually they get the hang of it. Um, and, uh, you know, gradually people learn these skills that they never learned previously. All right, in the, re the research I talked about last night, I introduced this idea of security priming, which in the experimental research is, is how um, researchers induce a temporary feeling of security uh, in the, the subject. And they use different ways, such as uh, reading uh, a story about someone who was in distress and who was helped, or thinking about a time in your life when that happened to you, um, or even subliminal types of things like um, flashing simply the word secure on a screen, uh, different things like that. All of these in experiments have shown to induce at least a momentary or temporary feeling of security in people. All right, but we also know from a couple of studies more recently that repeating the priming experience, doing it repeatedly, can uh, produce sustained effects. Now, we don't know how long these last. The research has only lasted, I think, like two weeks or three weeks, something like that. But nonetheless, it shows that if you do one of these priming types of procedures in the laboratory, it can uh, lead to a sense of security that can last across days and even a couple of weeks. So um, why not bring this into the therapeutic situation? Now, there's a couple of different ways that we might do that. For instance, thinking about or imagining a secure attachment figure. I gave a, an anecdote last night in response to a question of uh, a patient I worked with once. It was a, a young woman who had been through a lot of abuse, very problematic family of origin experience, uh, and really couldn't identify any key figure that she felt secure with at any time growing up, except there was grandmother, who was kind of a cursory figure. She only visited with her every once in a while. She lived in another town. But whenever she went to grandma's house, she always felt secure. Grandma was there. She was responsive. She gave her a big hug. Nothing bad ever seemed to happen there. Grandma was a safe, secure person for her. So there were times when we were in the therapy, working through very traumatic memories of stuff that happened with mom or dad or brother. Um, and she obviously would become very distressed by some of this. And one of the things that we would use to help her regulate her distress was to sort of bring grandma into the session. If grandma was there, what would she have done? Can you imagine that right now? Imagine she stepped into the scene that we're talking about. Can you imagine what it would have been like if she had given you a big hug right then? Things like that. Or, um, you know, I mean, that's a good example of how we might bring grandma into it. And this one figure who was, it was not a central part of this person's life can then become a more of a, a basis uh, for healing and, a, and sort of a measuring stick for what a safe relationship is supposed to be. So that's a way of kind of, I think, using a sort of security priming type of thing uh, in therapy. Another strategy, um, well, I mean, this is more or less the same thing, uh, but another strategy might be to repeat a security-inducing word or phrase as part of, say, a relaxation exercise, or uh, if you're into things like clinical hypnosis or even prayer. So, like I said, in the studies, some of these priming procedures were subliminal. All it, had to, all it involved was the flashing a word of it on a screen. So, for instance, some things that I've done in therapy might be, as a person is doing a relaxation exercise, to have them repeat the phrase um, just silently in their mind, safe and secure, and do that sort of rhythmically with their breathing. 
or uh, the, uh, the Divine Mercy picture and the phrase, Jesus, I trust in you, for some of uh, my more spiritual patients, repeating that phrase, again, in a state of calm, whether it's a prayer or some kind of relaxation or some other clinical exercise we're doing, can help them to uh, experience a sense of security. And if we do that often and regular enough, I think it will help gradually shift them to a more secure state of mind. And especially if we can connect it with their relationship with God, which is going to be obviously a part of their life, you know, long after we're done in therapy. Okay. So terminating therapy from an attachment perspective, uh, I want to assess the patient's readiness. I'm going to look at, you know, things like have we sufficiently worked through trauma and loss issues? Uh, have we worked through difficulties in our relationship? Sometimes termination comes up because there's difficulty in the therapeutic relationship and either the patient or the therapist doesn't want to deal with it. <laughs> and so we need to make sure that's not why termination is coming up. We're not just falling into some maladaptive pattern from the past where we get frustrated and then we walk away. Um, so looking at things like that, I also want to look at has the person been able to take the gains from therapy and use those to establish more secure relationships outside of therapy? How's the marriage doing? Have they developed more friendships or a larger sense of community that they're involved with that's going to sustain them after we stop meeting? How are they doing regulating their moods and emotions? Do they have more emotional awareness and ability to, to, to self-soothe than they did before? Uh, how's the, their view of self and view of others? Is it hopefully more positive but also more flexible than when we started? Uh, as termination comes up and is talked about, I'm also going to explore whether or not there's distress. You know, is the person sad about stopping therapy uh, or not? Uh, and why is that? And we need to understand that. And as I mentioned a minute ago, is termina terminating right now simply an enactment of some old pattern? And if that's the case, then we need to step out of that and to make that our focus of therapeutic work. All right, it's also good, I think, to revisit the important moments in therapy. And it's also often interesting how the patient and the therapist have different experiences of what were the key moments, or even the whole therapy in general. Um, and so we, we kind of go back and review, and oh, I remember when this happened, and when you came, and we worked on this, and we did this, and that seemed like an important moment. And what about you? What was that like? And what stood out for you in the process? We may negotiate a plan for tapering sessions um, instead of stopping abruptly, maybe meeting every two or three weeks or once a month. We may follow up two or three or six months later, something like that. And uh, some people in, in the attachment literature will advocate for a kind of open door policy. Or instead of sort of, you know, um, terminating permanently, you can come back anytime. You know, we're going to stop our regular sessions right now because I think you're ready. But anytime you need me, you give me a call and we can start up again, whether once or twice or ongoing, whatever. And that, you know, again, conveys that idea of this, the attachment figure. I'm, I'm here if you need me, but I trust in your ability to, to make it on your own. So it's kind of like a safety net, which is what a good secure base uh, figure does. It's also important to normalize setbacks. But yeah, there's going to be bumps in the road. Uh, and uh, talk about, you know, how are you going to handle those, and hopefully communicate a belief in the person's ability to uh, overcome them. Okay. There are a number of adjunct strategies that can be useful uh, in addition to some of the therapeutic work that I've talked about. Uh, for instance, uh, prayer. Prayer is huge, especially the kinds of prayer that um, 
help the person to experience God in a personal way. Not just, um, you know, certain, you know, kind of prayers or devotions, but, but really to build that personal relationship with God um, and helping the person to connect with a spiritual director or prayer group or something like that that can help foster that can be uh, very important uh, in this kind of healing work. You know, the therapist is not a spiritual director typically, uh, and so, you know, I have to recognize sort of the, the boundary of my competence in that regard. And while we may, you know, dabble in these things a little, we may bring, bring prayer into the session and things like that, and certainly talk about the person's relationship with God, uh, it's not my role to teach them how to pray or to be a spiritual director for them. So I'm probably going to refer them out for something like that. And again, that spiritual director or that prayer group or whatever can then be some, some, uh, a source of strength that can sustain them after the therapy ends. So uh, it's important for them to be you know, plugged into those kinds of things. Uh, the, the hyperactivating patients, the ones that tend to be more anxious and clingy, uh, they may benefit from um, decreasing the amount of petitionary prayer that they do. As I said yesterday, there's some research to suggest that individuals of that sort kind of emphasize a lot of petitionary prayer, which you know, parallels their interpersonal style. Help me, 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 right? As opposed to, um, you know, prayers of gratitude and trust. You know, I'm going to put my needs in your hands once, and I'm going to trust that you've heard me, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, whereas uh, the more deactivating patients especially benefit from bringing their feelings into prayer. So more affective involvement in the prayer. Uh, maybe types of Alexio Divina or Ignatian styles of prayer where there's more emphasis on the affective dimension, um, maybe engaging with a text from scripture and putting yourself into it and imagining how you would feel, things like that. Okay. Obviously involvement with, uh, with church and community is very helpful and important. Uh, social support is a, is a huge protective factor for people uh, in um, preventing them from relapsing in psychological problems. So I, I want you know, to see people be a little bit more involved in their, their parish life, get involved in some kind of club or something, Knights of Columbus, or a small group or, or something like that. And these things can become a kind of secure base experience for people. And like I said, it's going to sustain them after the therapy has ended. Journaling can also be really helpful. Uh, and if, you know, I don't require this of people that I work with, but if someone is sort of inclined in that regard, they like to write, maybe they've done some journaling before, I might encourage them to uh, do that in conjunction with the therapy. Um, you know, putting our feelings and experiences into words begins to integrate, uh, well, it begins to integrate the brain, but it also helps to uh, build a coherent narrative of my life experiences, uh, especially in regards to attachment and that's very healing. There's also research that shows that writing about painful experiences helps to aid uh, the resolution of them. So I often encourage people to do that, especially if we're focusing on maybe um, a particular theme or pattern or a traumatic experience, to do some writing about it. I might give them specific questions or topics to, to write about and bring it to the next session. In that regard, also, uh, letter writing. Now, these are the kinds of letters that you don't typically send, but uh, they're sort of, you know, if I were to encounter this person, this is everything I would want to say. So maybe someone who's been abusive or some hurtful experience in the past, um, basically confronting 
maybe someone or, or expressing regret could go the other way. But basically, anytime there's unresolved issues in a relationship, you know, writing the letter that you don't send can help put that into words. And what I might do in session then is, is turn that into a kind of um, gestalt empty chair sort of thing where I have them imagine that the person is in the room with us and read the letter to them uh, and work through all the feelings that arise uh, as they go through that process. This can also be very helpful in uh, forgiveness work, uh, which I haven't talked really about forgiveness in this, this whole process, but forgiveness is really huge. Um, and part of that, that whole you know, coming to terms with our past attachment experiences often entails forgiveness. Uh, forgiving parents or siblings or you know, boyfriends or girlfriends or whoever for you know, things that happened, um, ways in which they, they weren't there for us the way we needed them to be, or whatever. You know, we all do things that are hurtful because we're fallible human beings. Uh, and forgiveness is a way to um, acknowledge those hurts, but also to let go of the hurt and the anger that they give rise to. There's also, in the positive psychology literature, uh, an intervention having to do with writing a gratitude letter. So thinking about the people that have been there for me, maybe someone who really helped me during a difficult time, uh, or something like that, or someone who was a positive influence, and writing them a letter, and this could be a letter that you actually send, or even better, that the person bring to them and share with them, where you express your appreciation and gratitude for what you did for me. Uh, and this has been shown to be a very potent um, uh, intervention in dealing with depression and increasing sense of gratitude and quality of life. Okay, and then there's also this issue of mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is a popular intervention in psychological literature today, and um, uh, Christians often get uncomfortable with it because uh, of its connections with Buddhist meditation and things like that. And certainly, I'm, I'm not going to promote to any of my patients that they go engage in some kind of Buddhist meditation. Of course, maybe unless they're Buddhist, but I haven't been in that situation yet. Um, but the idea of mindfulness is, is not exactly that. These are basic mental skills, such as the ability to be aware of my bodily sensations without judgment or struggle, uh, the ability to let my thoughts come and go without um, getting caught up in them, uh, the ability to make space for and tolerate difficult emotions uh, without getting overwhelmed. These are basic uh, mental skills, and uh, there are a number of helpful mindfulness exercises that have been developed in psychology to help people establish those skills. Those skills typically are things that people who have a history of secure attachment tend to do naturally uh, because of those positive relational experiences. Their attachment figures, in very subtle ways, kind of taught them how to do this. But uh, those of us who maybe didn't have the benefit of that um, often need more help in learning this kind of thing. And so sometimes mindfulness exercises can be a helpful adjunct to therapy. Um, and there's a lot of research showing that they're very effective in dealing with uh, depression and anxiety and uh, a lot of different types of psychological distress. All right, but also, and more interestingly, there was a study I came across a few years ago looking at psychology interns. So these were, you know, uh, late stage graduate students finishing up their training uh, and uh, they were out on their internship year or something, you know, analogous to that. And uh, they participated in the study. They were randomly assigned to one of two groups. One was a mindfulness group and the other was uh, like a regular support group. So each group I think would meet either weekly or every other week to do their thing. 
So the interns in the mindfulness group would get together and they would practice some of these mindfulness exercises like uh, being aware of the body or letting thoughts come and go, uh, things like that. And the other group would, you know, I don't know, sit around and talk about their patients and support each other. And they followed these interns over the course of the year as they finished their training. And at the end of the year, they looked at uh, their quality of life, but they also looked at uh, their patients. And as it turned out, the interns in the mindfulness group not only had less stress and higher quality of life at the end of the year, but their patients actually improved more, uh, which to me is really striking, really fascinating. It shows how these basic mental skills uh, help me to also be aware uh, in the therapeutic moment what's going on in me, what's going on in the patient, and it frees me up to be able to focus and acknowledge that and bring it out in the open. So uh, I think these are helpful skills uh, for all of us um, in, in any kind of helping relationship. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.